Idols by Lord. Uh, if you uh, got the chance to see her Grammy performance, watching her live is so much better than watching the music video. She's just kind of an unnerving uh, young lady. You can see in the music video just the stare. She's like looking into your soul. I don't like it, okay? Uh, <laughs> apparently she wrote this song in like a matter of 30 minutes when she was 13 years old and then took it to uh, one of the people at the music label that she had just signed. And they're like, what do you think about this? And they're like, yeah, oh, that might work. And they went in and recorded it and it was, it was over. Um, and she's been very vocal. I don't know if you could catch it in the song. The song is a is kind of a, a protest or a cry against. It's very anti-consumerist, anti-materialistic. Uh, she's been very vocal in interviews about the meaning behind it. Um, she says at the time she was listening to a lot of rap and hip-hop and kind of the caricature, right, is, is true sometimes. A lot of these songs are just kind of glorifying wealth and fame and outlandish partying and things like that. And she said there's just a, such a disconnect between her and her friends and then the songs they were listening to. Uh, I mean, they weren't partying. They weren't, you know, going out and having these um, really grand parties and, and kind of grand experiences. They were living these kind of normal, everyday lives. And so she wanted to write a song that kind of related to more of what would be a normal teenage experience. She starts off the song, the lyrics go, talking about her kind of humble beginnings. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies. I'm not proud of my address. In a torn-up town, there's no postcode envy. She, she goes on to talk about this disconnect between what she hears in songs and then sees celebrated in the larger culture and then what she experiences in her life. But every song is like gold teeth, gray goose, tripping in the bathroom, bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room. We don't care. We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams. But everybody's like Crystal, Maybach, diamonds on your timepiece, jet planes, islands, Tigers on a gold leash. I don't know if you, you get that reference. We don't care, she says. We aren't caught up in your love affair. We'll never be royals. That kind of luck is not for us. We're, we're never going to be these, these people who, who live these grand lifestyles. Now, the ironic thing is she's actually now very, very famous uh, <laughs> and probably going to be very, very wealthy. And she talks in interviews about not even knowing, right? She says it's hard for her to spend more than $200 at one time. Uh, it just seems odd to her. She can't, can't wrap her mind around the kind of money that's coming in toward her. Um, even, I mean, everything about her and her music, particularly the song, is minimalistic. And this is what's so great sometimes about art, particularly music, is you get to work on so many different levels. Not only the lyrics, but even, even music. And so even the music to the song is very minimalistic, right? I mean, most of it is just a simple drum beat and some snaps. And a few little sounds in the background. Um, even the music video, right? Kind of think of, again, the caricature of like a hip-hop video, Right? They're popping bottles in the club, and they're dancing all night, and they're trashing these hotel rooms, and they've got girls everywhere, right? And her music video is just these bland walls, right? And TVs that don't work, and guys just shaving their head in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of everyday, normal life. Instead of having these, like, big, grand adventures, celebrity lifestyles, they're playboxing in the living room. Um, they're just sitting there at the train stop waiting for the, the train to come. And I don't know if you did get to see the Grammy performance. I didn't, again, you can see it live on Sunday, but I was watching some YouTube videos of the performances, and it was even more stripped down and kind of sparse than her original song. They, uh, one commenter said it was probably the least kind of performed song ever at the Grammys, if you were, were able to watch it. She just kind of stood there with no lights, okay, um, even less sound behind her than in the song itself on the track. I mean, some of it was just sung acoustic. Um, very few uh, of the drum beats, very few of the sounds behind her. Um, I mean, and comparing that performance to all the other performances, it's such a stark contrast. 
Right, so imagine demons, our guys get up there, and they've got guest rappers, okay, with them, and strobe lights going off, and it's loud, and everyone's jumping, and they're running around sweating, and then she's up there, and she's just standing there, just in silence with black lights, okay, nothing around her, and she's got these black kind of nail, uh, nails hung under the end of her nails there, it's, it's kind of this critique, it's kind of this, um, this kind of protest against the materialism and the consumerism that has invaded not only pop culture and songs, but really our, our world in general, right? I mean, that's kind of the celebrity lifestyle that we, we idolize. Um, and you and I obviously live in Sugarland, Texas, or at least in the greater Houston area, which is a very affluent um, place um, in regards to the rest of the world. What we have here in the song, I think we could call it a, a melodic lament of consumerism, of materialism. You could say it's a, a poetic critique of the widespread worship that's offered to the god Mammon. Are you familiar with Mammon? He's, he's part of the false trinity, okay, pagan gods that have kind of carried over into our culture. You have Mammon, um, which is the god of wealth, of excess, of stuff, possessions. You have Venus, the god of sex, the god of lust. And then you have Mars, the god of violence. This kind of our, the big trio that's existed in, in kind of every culture and every society and that's carried on and taken root in our culture and society. We, we worship money and we worship sex and we worship violence and power, coercive um, abilities to, to force things on other people. <coughs> now, Lord here is standing in a long line of biblical prophets who are going to loudly and, and very vocally and very boldly critique the human race after possessions and the human accumulation of wealth. In fact, one of these people that she um, kind of falls in tradition with is Jesus himself. If you, if you read through Jesus' words um, in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly critiquing wealth, critiquing the pursuit of wealth, warning of the dangers of accumulating wealth. We're going to read one of these passages um, from Jesus' mouth this morning in, in chapter 6 of Matthew, okay? We'll pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 6. Um, we'll even see Jesus here reference the God Mammon. This passage comes in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is, I think, probably the kind of constitution of being a Christian, the kind of marching orders for what it means to be a disciple. And in, in Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. Now that's an interesting phrase, we'll come back to that. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters Jesus says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, um, your ESV puts this in money. Other translations will have this in a capital M, mammon. Okay, this is the Aramaic word for money. It's also the personified idol of money, okay? And in fact, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's personifying money. It should be, I think, mammon in an uppercase M, okay? You cannot serve God and mammon. He's presenting to you two alternate gods. And says, you, you have to choose between one of these. You can't serve both. And he even uses love and hate language. He says, don't fool yourself. You're going to love one of them and hate the other. You can either love my father and hate mammon, 
Or you can love mammon and hate my father. He, he presents this contrast of two gods here. Um, and then he presents, right before this, he's presented this, this contrast of two kind of hearts. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. Now what's interesting is in the first century, um, they didn't really understand as much about biology as we do. Okay, Probably as much as I do. I'm not very good at it. Um, but I, I, I understand a few things. And, and so they had this debate. It was kind of a long-standing debate in the scientific community about how eyes work. Okay, And the, the kind of debate's around this. Does light come from inside the body and go out through the eyes? Or does light come to the eyes and then we receive it and interpret it inside of our body? Most people in the first century, even up until the, the fourth century, St. Augustine uses this as well, believed that actually light came from inside of you. And so light shined out through your eyes. There's like a lamp inside of your body and your eyes are like the window. And, and so it kind of shined out through you. Um, and the words Jesus uses here, he says, if your eye is healthy, okay, this word is often translated, even in your ESV Bible, as generous. Okay, your ESV, for whatever reason, wants to use the kind of bland translation and say healthy. They've never heard of context, apparently, because it's wrapped in two statements about wealth and possessions, right? It's generous. If your eye is generous, if the lamp inside of you is generous, then light will come out of you. St. Augustine once said that um, if you're full of light, that will come out of your eyes and those rays will shine upon everyone that you see. Right? The light is coming out of you. But he says, if your eye is bad, again, this word is translated even elsewhere in your ESV Bibles as stingy. Then darkness will come out. And he says, and if it's dark, how great is the darkness? These two hearts, these two attitudes, these two inward dispositions toward wealth, toward money. He began the passage by saying, uh, comparing these two actions, laying up for yourself treasures on earth versus laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. He says, don't do the first. You need to do the second. He gives you reasons even. He gives you kind of practical reasons. Um, if you lay up treasures here, you're not going to get to take them anywhere. In fact, you might lose them before you even die. He says, instead, be, be more practical about it. Store up something that will last, treasures that will will go on. Now this teaching, this passage is consistent with Jesus' message on wealth. If you read the Gospels and look through Jesus' various teachings, you'll find he is not pro-rich people. Jesus himself was poor, okay, didn't have very much. Most of the things he says about poor people are negative. Um, in Matthew 19, he tells a poor person um, who comes to him and says, what can I do to get in on this? And, and Jesus says, uh, follow the commandments, you know. And the guy goes, well, I've done all the commandments, but I still feel like I'm lacking this life that you have to offer. There's, okay, I can tell you what you need to complete all of this and co- really come into the kingdom, really experience my life, sell everything that you have. And the guy goes, I can't do that. And he says, okay, goodbye. And the guy walks away sad. He turns to his disciples and says, it's impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. This is not good news. Okay, this is not, this is not a something that we should take lightly, okay, that Jesus, I mean, this is a verbatim quote, it is impossible for a rich person to enter into God's kingdom. Now, he does say a few minutes later, the disciples respond and go, well, then who can be, who can be saved, right? I mean, this, you're excluding some, some pretty important people in the world. <coughs> Jesus says, now, what's impossible for man is possible for God. Now, unfortunately, what we sometimes do is we read that, and then we forget about what Jesus just said, right? That's like a get off the, the hook card for us. Like, oh, yeah, it doesn't even matter. But we miss out on the fact that Jesus sticks with his, his kind of invitation to join the kingdom. What Jesus is saying is not that the rich guy can join the kingdom without giving up his stuff. He's saying some rich people will be able to give up their stuff. Do you see the difference there? Jesus never backs down from his, his invitation to the man. If you want to enter, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. 
And they say, well, who's going to be able to do that? And he says, some people will be able to do it through the, the moving of the Spirit, through this kind of supernatural work in their hearts. Now, Jesus doesn't tell everyone to sell all they have. There's not a universal command. There's not something for us to slavishly follow. He meets rich people, and at points he doesn't tell them to sell everything he has. He kind of diagnoses this man, right, in this situation. Um, the canon itself is, is full of warnings about wealth. It's full of warnings to, to wealthy people. James 5, verse 1 through 6 you might want to read it if you get a chance. I mean, it really reads like an Occupy Wall Street manuscript. It says, you rich people, the more you hoard up, you're like calves fattening yourselves up to be slaughtered on the day of judgment. The more wealth you get, the more rich you become, the more God will destroy you. The more you'll be consumed by the riches that you have. There's this kind of consistent theme throughout the scriptures. Um, scholars will call it, in the Old Testament, you see a preferential bias toward the poor on God's part. God almost always seems to be on the side of the poor. This shouldn't surprise you. The Bible is written by the poor and oppressed people, right? And almost every part of the Bible is written by a person in the group of society that's in poverty and being oppressed by an empire, being oppressed by the powerful and the wealthy. Um, the strong theme throughout Scripture is those with wealth should um, share their wealth, should be on God's side in, in sharing God's heart for the poor. Now again, you would be correct in saying philosophically and foundationally, wealth itself is not bad. Money itself is not bad, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Where money turns evil is in the context of inequality. Does that make sense? Having wealth itself is not a bad thing. Having wealth... When others have nothing is where God's heart starts to get kind of pulled a little bit. Where he starts to say, why, why won't you share that? Why won't you give that to your neighbor over there who's starving? Why will you stockpile this for yourself instead of share it to others? Wealth, wealth itself is not bad. In a fallen world, though, it takes on um, this kind of almost demonic impulse, okay? Um, there's two big mistakes I think Christians make when we talk about wealth and when we try to look at Jesus' teachings on wealth. Here's the first one. I think we misunderestimate, that's not a word, I think we, I think we underestimate, what's funny is I actually typed that in my notes while I was writing my sermon, and I delete it and put underestimate, um, it's just in my mind, underestimate, we underestimate money's spiritual power, I think we should pay attention to the fact that Jesus here personifies mammon, it's a, a kind of spiritual force, it has a spiritual force pool on our lives. I think we assume that money is a neutral thing, easily manipulated for good or for bad, but I think that might be a bad assumption on our part. If you just watch what happens with money, okay? I'm young. I don't make a whole lot of money. But I've experienced this in my own life. I imagine um, some of you who are in tax brackets and I'm not in, okay, would experience the same kind of thing. Um, when I made less money, I had less stuff to spend it on. And the more I made, the more it seemed like I had to have. And I'm not a super greedy, materialistic person. I mean, I've never really been that kind of person to begin with. But I've always found a way, it seems naturally, right? It seems like it just kind of happens, that the more I make, the more bills I have to pay. It just kind of increases, right? The more I have to worry about. I think what, what you'll see happen here is, is money actually works on us. It's taken on kind of a life of its own in a fallen world. Paul talks about the principalities and powers. Jesus calls it a false god here, mammon. It asks for worship. It asks for sacrifice. It works on us 
to continue its own exaltation in our lives. It works on us in a large manner to continue its influence in our lives. You and I are born into a culture that is steeped in materialism, consumerism. It's not your fault. You didn't choose it. But a group of human choices has given power to this false god. It's organized the world in such a, such a way that its worship will be replicated over and over and over again. That, that people will be trapped in kind of this cycle of getting stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff, pursuing that for all of their lives. When we get money, it changes the way we think. I mean, it really does. If you, I think if you're going to be honest here, it changes what's possible for your life. It changes what you think you deserve. It changes the kind of lifestyle you think is acceptable for you. We automatically upgrade when we get a raise. I mean, I mean, this is this is this is guilty as, as charged, right? I'm in I'm in the boat with you here. Money works on us. Money changes us. Money has a spiritual kind of pull to it. Jesus calls it a god, and he matches it right up here with the true god, and says you have to choose one or the other. Both of these two will call you to worship them, will call you to serve them, will call you to organize your lives around them. Which one will it be? If you think about this as well, um, we live in a very individualistic society. Interestingly enough, though, I think the thing that we're most individualistic about is money. What would go through your mind if someone walked up to you today and said, how much money do you make? Mm -hmm. You'd be like, who are you? We don't talk about that. I think you, you could probably know someone for years and years and years, 20 years, 30 years, be best friends with them, have talked about a lot of things, like embarrassing, personal, private things, and never had that conversation or never asked that question. Because, I mean, well, there's a couple things that work. One, you, you're probably going to be maybe a little bit afraid that they're going to have a bigger financial portfolio than you are right and, and they'll kind of judge you or or perhaps you're you're afraid there's this christian thing right where you don't want to make too much money and then have them judge you for that and feel like you're not as generous as you should be things of that nature i mean we're very very private about our money i think that the more you'll find something that we want to keep in the dark and keep out of other people's eyes the more you're going to find something that we don't want other people meddling in the more you're going to find something that perhaps has turned into an idol has turned into something that that we've got pretty close hands on. I'm not willing to have that conversation with you. It's none of your business. Back off. This week, someone actually asked me that. They, uh, it was funny. I mean, there's no one around, and they, I mean, it was kind of came up in the conversation. We were talking about money and paying for things, and, and, and there's no one around, but he kind of asked it in like a hushed whisper. Like, and his whole body language, right? It's like, this, I don't know if this is allowed. And in my mind, I was, I was kind of surprised. It's like, this is an odd, I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to answer this. I don't know kind of offended i don't i don't know how to feel this is not a usual it's not a usual question and i'm tempted to lie in both ways right i mean i'm tempted to say i make more than i do to like impress him what up and then i'm tempted <laughs> i'm tempted to say i make less than i do right to kind of be like this humble like i'm barely getting by you know my life's really hard this is a weird pool so i lied on the upper side okay <laughs> six digits <laughs> I'm told, actually, in China that 
how much money do you make is actually like one of the first questions you ask when you meet them, like an icebreaker question. Including, including, how much do you weigh? <laughs> At this point, someone's like, wait, there might be some bad things about consumerism, but if it keeps those questions out of introductions, we're good with it, okay? Don't ask us how much we weigh. But even then, right, I mean, I think you have more conversations with people about your weight, and you're more open about your weight than you are your finances, than you are what, uh, what you make. And there's, I think it gets even weirder in Christian circles, right? Because there is always that, like, I don't want people to judge me. Right? I don't, I, if I've you know, got this nice new thing, I'm not sure they're going to be like, why didn't you give that to the poor, right? Or, or you know, why aren't you working harder for your money or, or things like that. There's, there's this kind of extra moral dynamic that gets brought in when you're in a Christian community here. But I think you have two competing gods. I think you have, have, have two competing spiritual forces at work here. You can compare the kingdoms and see a big difference. The kingdom of mammon preaches scarcity. Scarcity, not much. You've got to grab your own. You've got to make sure you have your own. The kingdom of God preaches abundance. If you keep reading on in Matthew 6, it says, look at the world. Look how, look how fully clothed it is. Look how much God provides for everything. You have nothing to worry about. The kingdom of, of mammon, the kingdom of wealth and possession, it runs on, it's motivated by, it's fueled by fear. Fear that you won't have enough. Fear that something bad will happen to you and you won't have saved enough. Fear that you might lose it. The kingdom of God is, is, is run on something opposite. It's run on trust and hope. Like a childlike trust. Jesus says like the sparrows who just live their lives. And God clothes them so beautifully. Um, Martin Luther said that what you've got with the, the moths and the rust and the thieves are the three kind of demons of the god Mammon. The three kind of trustees of Mammon. They work to make sure Mammon continues to receive worship and sacrifice. Jesus uses them as reasons why you shouldn't worship Mammon, but they also work in the other way, right? I mean, if my stuff is going to rust, if the moths might find it, if the thieves might break into steel, I need more. I need to be afraid of it. I need to hold on to it more tightly. In the kingdom of God, we, we live with open hands. And we say, if something happens in the future, we'll be taken care of. God, our, our loving Father, knows what we need. We, we have a body of Christ surrounding us who lives generously, who will protect us as our, as our own family. The kingdom of mammon, um, kind of the, it grinds on the character trait of greed, of wanting more, of not being content with where you are. Again, this is opposite of the kingdom of God, which, which runs on the, the character trait of contentment, of generosity, of giving away. Not getting. Christians are to be go-getters, go-givers and not go-getters. We're, we're supposed to be people who are generous, not people who are, who are greedy. This is one of the, the issues we have in, I think, our current society, um, which is um, we've tried to make a, a virtue out of greed. And, and there might be, there are some positive things that come out of that, right? I mean, you don't get the innovations that we get in our economy without greed, right? I mean, capitalism has its flaws. I think we need to recognize that um, because it's the system we're most familiar with. But it, it's probably one of the better systems we've seen in world history in terms of the, its ability to, to produce capital, produce wealth, um, again, produce innovation, creativity, technology, those kind of things. But you'll never get to the goal of Christ or the kingdom by turning vices into virtues. You might get some immediate payoffs, you might get some small-term goals, but you'll never get there. In the kingdom, there's full obedience. There's full trust. There's giving up all vices, not pretending that you could play them into virtues. 
You give a greed. Which brings up, I think, an interesting point about the Sermon on the Mount in general, which is Jesus is not talking to a government here, right? Jesus is not describing what he thinks is the ideal nation. He's talking to disciples, to people who decided to follow him. This is a command not to government, not to um, a parliament, not to a congress, not to a state or a nation. This is a command to baptized people who now have a citizenship in another kingdom. So, so the kingdom of, of God, it's, it's economic ways. We would say don't compete with capitalism or socialism. It's not you choose one or the other. It's, it's a completely alternative thing um, altogether for a different nation, the nation of God, that's transnational, transtemporal. It stretches across national lines, ethnic lines, even lines of time. This is a way that's made possible by Christ, his example, his work on our behalf, the Holy Spirit given to us. This is not, again, general advice, right, for how Jesus thinks the world's economy should work. He's talking to people who have given up everything to come follow him. And he's saying, this is how you should live. It's not how the world should live. This is how you should live as my people, as my disciples. The kingdom of mammon functions on the idea of merit. You get what you deserve, or at least you should get what you deserve. Again, this is completely opposite of the kingdom of God, which functions on grace. Freely unmerited grace. That everything you have, not even just your salvation, everything you have, the life you have, is a gift. The intelligence you have is a gift. The hard work ethic you have is a gift. None of it is yours. You earned none of it. You receive it as a creature, as a gift. And so receiving it freely, you're able to freely give it. Davis and Allison, two scholars, say this about mammon. It, once it has its hooks in human flesh, it will drag it where it wills, all the time whispering into the ear dreams of, of self-aggrandizement. The marching orders of God and the marching orders of mammon are in entirely different directions. So Jesus is getting at here. Money is mysteriously idolatrous. As Christians, I think the first thing we should do is be caution, cautionary about it. We, we should be... Um, a little skeptical of it. We should appreciate the spiritual force that it has. Um, and I think we are called to be, in this passage and others, atheists. And I think maybe if, if I had one goal for this morning, it would be that, that we would all leave going, I'm an atheist. And what I mean by this is, is a, a true atheist in our culture. A culture who I think worships and sacrifices to the god Mammon. I think Christians are called to live in a different kingdom and to say, I refuse to give any ultimate value to that deity. I worship the triune God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I refuse to worship or sacrifice to the god of Mammon, Venus, or Mars. In the culture that I live in, I'm recognized as an atheist. I place no value, no hope, no obedience in those false gods. I worship the one true God. I belong to his kingdom. Um, again, it's mysteriously powerful in our lives. I'm a high school teacher, or, or the way we talk about college and raising up our kids betrays this, okay? Um, the goal is almost always to be able to get a good major and make good money, right? We want to be safe. We want to have good money. Those priorities come in place over and above our kingdom priorities. Now, if we were really pushed, we would say differently, but I think our stereotypical language betrays us. Our actions betray us. I could, have, I could have made more money than I'm probably making right now. I've actually been asked that question. You were a pretty smart kid. Why, why'd you go do that? It's not too late. You go to medical school, do something. Make some money. You can still be a Christian and make money. 
I understand. But I'm not so sure that the money wouldn't make me. I'm a little more cautious about how I would handle money. What would happen with that? I think it's a, it's a God who's going to be whispering in my ear. Now, the second mistake I think Christians make about money, um, you see this here in the text, is we often try to reduce Jesus' teachings, his commands, to attitudes of the heart or inward dispositions and not actual actions. So this is a huge cop-out Christians have used for centuries to get out of Jesus' teachings. It goes all the way back to St. Augustine, okay, um, in the 4th, 5th century. Um, when Christians started becoming more powerful and more wealthy, they had to figure out a way to get around all these texts by Jesus that seemed to be like you couldn't be powerful or wealthy. Okay, and so one of the moves they made was they said, Jesus is talking about your heart, not about your actions. Um, so Augustine is, is real famous for doing this with violence and, and the <coughs> enemy love command from Jesus. He says, in fact, this is kind of a verbatim quote from St. Augustine, you can love your enemy while you kill them. Because it's referring to an inward disposition of your heart, not external actions. And you're kind of like, come on, man. Come on. A little bit of common sense. If that's what loving looks like, please don't love me, okay? <laughs> we do this with money as well. The Christians started doing this with money pretty early on, right? Um, Jesus is not actually saying money itself is bad or, or accumulating wealth is bad. He's saying having an attitude that wants money is bad. Again, though, I'm not so sure that these things can always be so easily separated. I'm not sure even this is what you find in the text. If you look, Jesus says, don't lay it for yourselves treasures on earth. There's a command. Don't do it. This is not an action you should be participating in. Instead, lay for treasures in heaven. Be investing in the kingdom and in God's mission in the world. And watch what he says. Watch the progression. It's very clear. In verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not flipped around, folks. He doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will be. He says where you put your treasure is where your heart will follow. I think sometimes we do this attitude action and kind of displacement activity and it has two negative effects. The first negative effect it has is it has this ability to um, help us deceive ourselves. So we say, right, money doesn't really have much hold on me, but our actions would betray us. Our actions would betray us. Um, You can say your bank account doesn't lie with what you spend your money on with what's priority to you. I think we're really good at saying, my money doesn't own me, and that's all that Jesus cares about, when in fact, our money probably does own us. And then two, it has this this tendency to help us push off obedience. So so we pull, I mean, I've seen this pulled so many times, God loves a cheerful giver, and I'm not very cheerful about giving right now, so I'll hold off on this. Well, God likes an uncheerful giver too, okay? Let's start there. And see what happens. Your actions have a tendency of driving your emotions. We, we flipped it around because we're a very emotional kind of group of people. But your thoughts and your actions sometimes drive your beliefs. Sometimes drive your emotions. Sometimes the best action against greed is just to be generous. Give something away. And then your heart perhaps will start to, to resonate with that lifestyle. Your heart will perhaps start to resonate with why Jesus would command this in the first place. Where your treasure is, he says, that's where your heart's going to be. Not where your heart's going to be, there's your treasure. It's an, it's an action-oriented thing. Early Christians, um, we've come a long way in how Christians think about wealth. Again, I'm talking as one who lives in, in Sugarland. I live in a gated apartment community. 
Um, early Christians agreed almost unanimously that holding wealth was an obstacle to being a disciple of Christ, um, that having a large sum of wealth. Um, the early church fathers unanimously, not almost, but unanimously agreed that charging interest was sinful. Now, this actually has a surprisingly scriptural background to it. The Old Testament is very clear. You do not charge interest on money. That's a form of theft in the Old Testament. New Testament doesn't comment much on it, but the, the command seems to carry over into the New Covenant. The early church fathers are clear on it. The only reason this has ever actually changed in church tradition is because of the rise of capitalism, built on the idea of credit, borrowing against the future. And the church kind of had to go with the times. I mean, they, they, sometimes the church has held out, right, and kind of put their ankles in the ground and kind of looked foolish. You know, the whole world is going in this other direction. But this is one where, where the church uh, kind of capitulated really quickly. Okay, yeah, well, you can start charging interest. Um, I don't know if you saw this in our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 15, verse 5. He's talking about who can dwell in the house of the Lord, who can be sure they won't be moved. What's one of the, what was one of the requirements in verse 5? He who gives his money without interest. This is, this, is, this is an interesting kind of theme throughout our, our scriptures. The early church, um, I mean, they were very clear for, I think, a surprisingly long time. If you're a Christian, you better not be collecting interest on money. This is a way of, of dominating other people. This is a way of, of, um, of influencing and continuing poverty and, and, and being able to manipulate other people. I had an ethics professor once who's always stuck in my mind because um, he took some of the Jesus' commands. He wasn't consistent about this, but on money, he was very consistent in obeying Jesus and always impressed me. Um, his philosophy was this. If I get asked for money, Jesus has told me to give that money if I have it. If I don't have it, then I can't give it. And I won't borrow, you know, to give money. I'm not going to go into debt to give money or anything like that. But if I have the money and if I'm able to give it away and someone asks for it, then I give it freely and I don't expect anything back. And I'm, sh- I'm sure it's not going to charge interest on it, right? And he would do it. I mean, if you're a student and you were like, do you have 20 bucks? If he had 20 bucks in his wallet, he'd give you that 20 bucks. And he'd say, it's not my job to you know, question your motives. It's not my job to do this or do that. If I don't have the 20 bucks, I can't give you the 20 bucks. I'm sorry. I'm not going to drive to the ATM to get a 20 for you. But if I, but if I have the cash on me, I'm going to give it to you. I'm not going to charge interest for you. I mean, kind of took it at face value. So I'm going to ask you for something. If you have it, give it. Live generously. That's something I've, I've tried to practice, right? And kid walks up in, at school and doesn't have lunch money. Pay for the lunch. Okay, I'll bring you back money tomorrow. You don't bring back money tomorrow. You didn't ask if, if I would loan you out money. I had money. I could pay for your lunch. Just a gift. People pay for my lunch. In the future, someone's going to pay for my lunch, right? I, I just give generously. Um, the early church fathers, again, they, they commonly asserted that those who accumulate wealth and withhold their possessions from the poor are guilty of theft of the poor. Um, they, would, they would tell stories. They'd say, the, the blood of the poor is on your hands. Again, it's, it's not so much that money itself is inherently evil, um, it's that money in a, a world full of inequality is morally culpable. God would say, why are you holding on to so much when there's so many needs around you? When there's so many needs around you. Um, I heard a debate once between a pastor who gives a lot of money away. And another pastor actually was accusing him of being irresponsible, not providing enough for his family, putting enough away for college savings, things like that. And his response was, you keep telling me I'm irresponsible for not preparing for future emergencies. When there are emergencies happening around me every day, just because they're, they're not my children, I'm supposed to ignore them? Just because it's those 50 girls over there that, that are going to be sleeping in the rain tonight, I should just ignore that and save up for one day if my kids have to sleep in the rain? He said, look, I don't live in fear of the future. If something happens in the future, it can. I'm aware of it. I think God will take care of me. I think the body of Christ around me will take care of me. I don't have to wait for an emergency. 
Kids are dying today. I'm living, living generously. So a couple things that we can do. We'll wrap it up. I preached like three hours last week because I, I had the week off, so I'm going to try not to be too long this morning. A uh, couple action items. Look, I know this is a hard thing. I know that um, this is something that I'm not uh, anywhere near perfect in. Um, I think this is an uphill battle for us just from where we are, where we live. Um, and I think the struggle is okay. Okay, I think we just have to make continuous steps toward obedience. There's a reason I don't preach on money a whole lot. I mean, I just don't. Jesus talks about money way more than I preach on it. You'll never hear me up here begging for tithes. Y'all are a very generous congregation. We never, there's a reason we pass the offering plate out before my sermon. <laughs> we would have gotten a bigger offering if we did, the, <laughs> we did the offering after the sermon. I promise you. Science. <laughs> what to do? I think the, the first thing is to be honest with ourselves. Maybe, uh, um, I know in my own life, sometimes I don't even realize where my money's going, how I'm using it, what's going on. Um, the acid test is not what we say we do with our money, but what we actually do with our money. Um, where is it going? What are we doing with it? Um, your bank account's on light. Now, I know this is, is probably impossible and not going to happen, but I, I feel like I have to say it. I think we were created to live in community as Christians, and I think having accountability with your finances is a good thing. Now, I'm not saying walk up to someone and be like, how much do you make? Let me see your bank account, right? But I'm saying if you could build a relationship with someone where you were able to get to that point, I think that would be good for you and good for me. I think that would help me avoid worshiping mammon. I get it. This is, I think, the sacred cow, okay? Um, this, I think, will be the last step in a deep community that you build, being able to, to share kind of financial accountability. Um, but I think if, 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 if you really want to get out of this kind of worship of mammon, this would be something that would be good for you. Number two, one, be honest. Number two, be generous. I think the, the, the antidote to greed is generosity, is giving, is action, right? The more generous you are, the less greedy you find yourself becoming. Um, be more generous this year than you were last year. Be more generous next year than you were this year, right? Just take small but faithful steps in the right direction. And you'll find yourself forming the kind of habits of a kingdom person. It doesn't have to be this huge step, right? You don't have to go sell everything that you have and give it all away. Start making tents on the side of the road. Grow out a long beard, okay? <coughs> just, just look at your budget and go, hey, can we, can we be more generous this year? And a little bit more generous. This is what we're doing. If we're being honest, I don't know if you watch this. This is what we're doing with our church budget. Every year we're saying, how much, how much more could we give? A little bit more. Let's do a little bit more. Let's do a little bit more. We didn't sit down and say, let's slash 50% of everything and give everything else away. We just said, hey, this year, how can we be more generous than we were last year with our finances? How can we be more open? Um, Here's an idea I've heard. It sounds crazy. What if we were to set a limit on our lifestyles? What is enough for you? To where if you started making more than that or you got a raise, that automatically went away. That automatically was given away. You didn't look at how to upgrade your life. That would be an interesting question to ask yourself, to ask, talk about with your family, with your spouse. What is, what is our lifestyle? At what point will we have had enough to provide for us and be satisfied, and everything above that is able to be given away? Can you settle a limit? I think that um, biblically, the last 10 or 15 years saw a big Christian movement to, for Christians to get out of debt, which I think is a good thing. I think it's just common sense, really, but, but I think it's a good thing. I don't think we should be living in a lot of debt. Some debt is necessary, I get it. Um, so so a lot of, there's been this push... Uh, to not live above your means. I think that there should be an equal push to not live at your means, right? Um, I mean, to have money to, to, to be able to give away, have money to, to be able to, to tithe, have money to be able to give to local organizations, to give to poor people. Um, as part of being generous, I would say this, um, get to know actual poor people. 
get to know a homeless person, right? Um, I once heard someone say this in a conversation about gay and lesbians. Christians should love gay and lesbians, right? We should be reaching out to them. We shouldn't be hateful towards them. And he said, here's what I always respond with when a Christian says it to me. If you love gays and lesbians, what are their names? It's one thing to hypothetically love a group of people and then say negative things about them in public and protest. (coughs) It's another thing to actually know those people, know their stories, eat with them, hang out with them. And then if we're we're really being honest, negative statements like that, like, hey, I think your lifestyle might be a sin, should really only occur in the context of a loving relationship. Where you've built up that trust where you can say, hey, I'm really concerned about you actually about this. Uh, I think it works for, for, right, do you love poor people? Do you love homeless people? What are their names? Who are they? I think, I think kind of reaching out, that human element, would, would add a lot to the way we're able to use our money and able to see our money. This is why I'm a big fan of long-term mission trips. Not long-term, but short-term um, long mission trips away. Even though they're sometimes not always cost-effective, right? I mean, sometimes you have to raise so much money to get somewhere. <laughs> Tickets are expensive, right? That, I mean, you could probably objectively do more good if you were able to get that money just straight into the hands of someone who would use it wisely. But I'm still a fan of it because I think having us going and being there for a week will have a bigger long-term benefit, right? Eat with them. Smell their air. Drink their water, right? Sit in that village and have your heart changed by your interaction with these people. Um, and then this last one, and, and we're done here. Um, I think you and I should continue to focus on the biblical hope of the resurrection of the dead and new creation, new heaven and new earth. I think one of the things our focus on heaven has done to us is made us have to hold on to the things on this earth a little bit more tightly than we should. So if we are going to experience a completely otherworldly salvation, right, get sucked off to heaven um, with our souls, And if the option before us is to be a fairly wealthy Christian or a poor Christian, the wise thing to do, I think, is to choose to be a fairly wealthy Christian. And I don't think that's, I don't, I think that's a a, a correct temptation because there are a lot of good things on this earth to enjoy. I mean, there are a lot of good things on this earth to enjoy. And it's kind of like the little kid, like I was, who doesn't want Jesus to come back too soon, right? Before I get married, before I do this, before I do that. I think that's a good impulse. God created the world and said it was good. It was good. But if we can recognize that there's going to be a new earth, there's going to be a resurrection, that you will not miss out on any experience there is to be had here, then we are freed up in the present to invest everything in the kingdom mission. Does that make sense? We don't have to to hoard because we won't be able to experience these things later. Right? Um, I was talking with a student about this this last week, and, and she was having this hard time. What are we going to be doing on the new earth? How is, well, I mean, eventually we're going to run out of things to do. And I'm like, just think about how beautiful and awesome and awe-inspiring and enjoyable creation is now. And I said, pick a number. How many different memories and fun things do you think there are to experience in the world? She said, probably millions. I said, at least millions. You can spend your whole life going to a new place every hour and experiencing a new thing and being overwhelmed by it and being in awe of it. I said, now imagine a world without sin and death in the presence of our Lord. There's going to be an infinite, infinite amount of, of, of enjoyable things to do, pleasures to, to experience, adventures to, to partake in. Christians aren't people who just don't enjoy the world. And they're just, you know, they're weird, they gave it up. They, don't, they didn't like the things on the earth. They're people who made a longer term investment. He said, I'm going to give it up right now for the mission of the kingdom, knowing full well that I'll receive it and more in the future. 
There's not one experience on this earth I'm going to be missing out on. There's not one sacrifice that I'm going to make that I'm going to receive back more fully. The call, I think, is to be atheist, to, to refuse to give value to the God of Mammon, to refuse to sacrifice any more at its altar. We sometimes sacrifice marriages at the altar of Mammon. We sacrifice families at the altar of Mammon. The number one reason couples go to, to marriage counseling is financial trouble, financial lies, financial tension, disagreement. Um, I can't tell you how many kids I've seen growing up in, in our area whose parents um, run after Mammon and, and don't really realize their kids are alive. We sacrifice things at the altar. What you and I are called to do is come to this altar and realize that the sacrifice has been made for us to worship and be presented before the one true God, the Holy Trinity, not the false Trinity. And so we come to the table and we receive God's love for us freely. And over time, through small steps of obedience, without feeling guilty, without feeling like we've got to change the world all at once, but over time, we learn how to give freely. We come and receive so that we can go and give. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the grace that you have given us. We pray that you would uh, bless us this morning. We pray that you would um, show us your wisdom for how to use our money, Father, in a, in a topic that can get controversial and it can get confusing and that there's, there's really no one perfect answer for it. Probably looks a little bit different in all of our lives. We, we need your wisdom. We need your personal kind of guidance on this, Father, um, that we might be people who are generous and people who, who have chosen to serve the one true God and not um, the false God of money and wealth and possessions. Father, we pray that um, you would protect us from uh, any spiritual pool uh, of wealth and possessions. Father, we know that there were wealthy people who followed you, who, who supported you in your ministry as wealthy people, who supported the early church as wealthy people. We, we understand wealth in itself is not impossible to have as a Christian, and it's not inherently evil, Father. We, we just know it's, it can be dangerous. And so we pray that we would be the type of people who um, are able to follow you fully. And if we discover that anything's holding us back from you, we'd be able to, to let it go. We'd be able to, to open up our hands and freely receive, Father, your love for us. We pray that you would be with us and would continue to form us into your people, a people shaped by your death and resurrection, and a people longing for the kingdom to come. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that all God's people said, Amen.